Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of how innovation works by our old pal, Matty Ridley, Serendipity, Energy, and the Saving of Time. He's not really our old pal in the sense that this is our first book of his that we're ever reading. I reckon if we met him, he'd be <laughs> all about us and he'd be good friends pretty quickly. Well, in this episode, uh, we're going to trace ideas from invention through to innovation, through the long struggle to get an idea to catch on, usually combining it with other ideas. And uh, I guess in my brain, invention and innovation used to be uh, exchangeable, interchangeable words. Now, they're very different things. Yeah, a bit like the words uh, donation and uh, pledge, if you've been watching the Amber Scott and uh, that trial in the previously. But you can use words synonymously and sometimes they shouldn't be used synonymously. And in this time, they're two different things because innovation is really where the crux of where all the change happens in this world. And it really happens in certain circumstances under certain criteria, which is explored throughout this book. Innovation happens when people are free to think, experiment and speculate. It happens when people trade with each other. It happens where people are relatively prosperous but not desperate. And it's something that's somewhat contagious. Maybe it sometimes needs a bit of investment. Uh, generally happens in big cities and so on. These are the things that we probably isn't anything surprising when you think of if you were to define innovation. But do we really understand it? I'd say probably not, but despite (laughs) it's being so super important and fundamental to how the world works and the whole reason why, you know, 15 years ago you were um, banging around with the old Nokia 6210 playing Snake and today you've got an iPhone doing all sorts of fun stuff and sort of take it for granted or Uber Eats, that's probably another big one that um, I'd say 15 years ago you just dream of something wasn't just pizza delivery and today it's the click of a finger you get anything in the world that you want for food wise so it's a big deal but um we don't really focus on it and try and optimize it as best we can and it's such a mysterious thing on how it actually works yeah that's right big old matty ridley he says that the income of the average ethiopian has doubled in the last decade the number of people living in extreme poverty has dropped from 50 percent to below 10 percent for the first time in history Malaria mortality has plummeted. War has almost ceased altogether, uh, and it's it's becoming much rarer these days. Frugal LED lights have replaced the incandescent and the fluorescent bulbs. Telephone conversations are essentially free now over Wi-Fi. All these things are due to innovation. The chief way in which innovation changes our lives is letting us work for each other. And the main theme of human history is that we over time become more and specialized and become more niche in how we work and what we produce. But at the same time, we become more, more diversified in what we consume. So because other people have become more niche and more specialized, you as a consumer, you've got more variety of things that you can consume yourself. So it's that dichotomy that pushes things. In essence, we spend 40 hours a week working, which we call a job, just so we can spend the other 72 hours drawing upon the services where other people are doing the work. So in this episode, we're going to go over a a story of innovation, and then we're going to go over some of the key components, some of the things that make innovation necessary, or some of the building blocks that you need to make innovation happen. Mate, the biggest thing and most important event in all of history and all of humankind, it happened somewhere in the northwest of Europe, approximately about 1700, give or take, 
you know, a bunch of decades, and it was achieved by some some bloke or some some bodies, but we don't really know who it was from. <laughs> but it was a bloody big deal. That's all <laughs> Man, we know. I was struggling to believe you. I know you say uh, a lot of things are the best thing that's ever happened, uh, but by saying that the most important thing happened somewhere at some point in time by some person. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I'm buying that Not one. Not even some person. A bunch. Of, potentially, <laughs> potentially, probably a bunch of maybe people, one, maybe a, maybe a handful, maybe a whole bunch. But why so vague, mate? Well, at the time, uh, nobody would have noticed. Well, no one definitely would have realized its significance. Um, the innovation that they came up with uh, wasn't valued in any way. There was a whole bunch of confusion about what happens and then what's the point of doing it. There was no great eureka moment where they were digging a, a hole and they struck gold. There was nothing like that. It was just a general, gradual, stumbling change. These are some of the features of some of the biggest and best innovations ever. And the big prize or the biggest deal that ever hit the history of humankind was this uh, invention at the time that probably turned into innovation as we'll, as we'll explore, but the first controlled conversion of heat into work. Because this is the key breakthrough that made the whole industrial revolution possible, if not inevitable. Matt Ridley wrote this book on a laptop powered by electricity, aboard a plane powered by electricity with the help of electric light. We're recording this podcast. Obviously, we need a hell of a lot of electricity. And this is, you know, three centuries later where we got to. But the the starting point, the genesis of that was that first conversion of heat to work, you know, by some person or some group of people, some, you know, somewhere around the 1700s in some place, maybe in Europe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it. So the dichotomy like today, we've got electricity coming from wires, from a power station where you've got huge turbines being spun at high speed by steam that's generated by something else burning. And that's the, creating the power station for us. That's today. But before 1700, what it was was just heat and work. But that was produced by, say, burning of wood and uh, natural resources like that. Or you'd use horses, get your old horse and cart. When you need to move house, you'd chuck your furniture on that. You're probably doing a whole, a lot of trips just to move 100 metres down the road. A big ordeal for them. But then the big one happened when steam was replaced there and it eventually was a thing that turned heat into work. And really, that's when the world was never the same again. Yeah, that's right. Before we had heat and work, they were two separate things. Now we've got heat becoming work. And that's really that first key thing. And when we're saying about it, how we don't really know who did it or who it was, there was a bloke called Thomas Newcomen. We don't know what he looked like because he just died and he's somewhere in an, a, an unmarked grave, somewhere in London, somewhere around 1729. And not far away, there's this other dude named Dennis Pappen who just died as a pauper in 1712. And then uh, another bloke called Thomas Savory who died in 1715. These three people, they were all neighbours. They sort of crossed paths every now and then. We don't know a hell of a lot about them, but their interactions were some of these crucial building blocks to this heat-to-work transition. Yeah, there were some of the early candidates about, I mean, who are we going to herald this prize of being <laughs> the biggest deal of humankind since the great J-Banger J Jesus? But if you dig a bit deeper, it gets a bit more confused. I mean, who are we going to attribute this to? In 1698, you got Leibniz, exchanging letters and with Papin and Papin's designs for the engines that um, could raise water by the use of fire. So pumping water out of mines was a big problem to solve. And um, and Papin, at the time, it turns out he was dreaming of powering boats by steam. He said in, in a quote, I believe that this invention can be used for many other things besides raising water. So, mate, do we do we attribute it now to Leibniz <laughs> or the other three who were a bit before him? Yeah, well, Papin eventually, uh, he made a boat with a paddle wheel 
so that what he did was he had steam from the boiler that would push a piston ejecting water through a pipe and into the paddle wheel to spin the paddle wheel and that powered the boat so that's pretty impressive in 1707 Hmm. Um, but you know that was just one very small very niche application of this great idea that eventually becomes everything pretty much that we use today Mm. so none of them really attributed fully with what actually happened perhaps someone out of that group someone who sort of could be kind of is uh, Thomas Newcomen because he was the first one to invent an engine and it was called the Newcomen engine and it was horribly inefficient it was the size of your house it was like a big monster churning away smokes and clanked and hisses and um, just pissed everyone off pissed your neighbors <laughs> off a big big time um, but he, he made that big jump there and you know, somewhat uh, had some attribution because of that. <laughs> That's right. They said that 99% of the energy that went into this Newcomen engine was wasted <laughs> in all those bangs and clanks and only 1% was actually efficiently turned into something that was useful. And then eventually, a little bit later, uh, about 30 years later, another bloke comes along, James Watt. He creates his flywheel and a drive shaft and that takes the idea from Newcomen and kind of turns it from a 1% efficiency to more like a 30% efficiency. But So maybe we should give it to old Watty. <laughs> so obviously people are a big deal of why innovations happen and there isn't just one hero candidate. There's a whole bunch of them. So the hero attribution is a bit of a fallacy there. But what about the other components? Like why was it in Britain and France and, and not somewhere else? Or was it due to the improvements in metallurgy in the late 17th century? So it allowed large brass cylinders and pistons that could now be built and allowed these other these other lads come up with these novel ideas um, standing on the shoulders of other inventions by other people? Or was it because of the dramatic expansion of the coal mining industry? Again, a new industry that they weren't related to, which made coal really cheap, that made the forest shrink at the same time, perhaps to some extent. Or was it also because of the uh, expansion in trade between Europe and by the Dutch and the expansion of capital investment allowing entrepreneurs to take capital and turn it into uh, higher yielding dividends for, for those investing in them? So there's a lot of, a whole bunch of different moving parts here that can be attributed to these this innovation. That's right. That's why we said at the start that the biggest innovation ever was at some point by some people for some reason <laughs> that we didn't really know because it was kind of all these different things uh, that go into it. If we fast forward a couple of centuries, then sometime later this energy that these guys had come up with took another turn, another evolution. There was uh, the first ever uh, demonstration in front of a, that a, a light could light up a room was done in front of an audience of 700 people by a person named Joseph Wilson Swan. And he did this lecture where he uh, had this uh, glass bulb and a current passed through it and then it turned into light. Hang on, mate. <laughs> so you got a light bulb there. Didn't Thomas Edison invent the light bulb? Well, that's what I always thought. That's what I thought. He, But yeah, no, Thomas Edison did. But so did this Joseph Wilson Swan bloke. But then also... So did someone named Marcelin Jobard in Belgium. So did William Grove. So did Frederick Moylens. So did uh, William uh, Delarue. So did uh, Alexander Lodigin in Russia. So did Heinrich Gobel in Germany. So did Henry Woodward in Canada. All these people actually invented the light bulb all pretty much around the same time. <laughs> <laughs> well, every single one of them produced, published, and patented 
the general idea of a, of a glowing filament in a bulb of glass. So the light bulb, and all of these people did it before Thomas Edison. That's crazy. The 21 people lay claim to having independently invented the light bulb before our uh, Thomas Edison, who probably is the, the cookbook hero. That's right. And obviously, you know, going back to this time, there was no uh, no Facebook post of someone just saying, hey, I just made the first light bulb. There was no world news of saying this person in Russia had invented the light bulb. They all did it completely independently of each other. Mm. So it wasn't like they thought, oh, that's a good idea. I might give it a crack myself. They all somehow separately came up with the same idea all around the same time. So the truth is about this story of the light bulb, it far from illustrates the importance of the heroic inventor, the Thomas Edison, tells the opposite story, right? So innovation is a gradual, incremental and collective yet inescapably inevitable process. <laughs> That's right. A lot of words there. We have to jump on my um, favorite word of the day. I learned. You learn yeah. a few words. Our vocabulary should be much broader. Or me personally, <laughs> based on the amount of books we read, do we get lazy and sometimes you read a word and you're like, oh, I don't understand that. But yeah, you just, just skip it. Yeah. Inexorably is one here. <laughs> so the light bulb will emerge inexorably from. I think it might be inexorably. Oh. <laughs> but the only thing is, I'm only saying that. I didn't know the definition until 10 minutes ago either. Mate, so my I track know. record of pronunciation isn't in the best. So you, you go ahead. <laughs> well, I, don't, I still don't know what it means. I didn't look it up. You, you had it's the inevitable. humility like to look it up. It happens inevitable and uh, it's going to come down. Why would you use inexorably instead of inevitably? Because everybody knows what inevitably means, but people don't know what inexorably I suppose it makes you sound smarter. Ma- yeah, yeah, I think you get a bit of the sound smartness. <laughs> but it was a pound to appear when it did, right? So it was, it was always going to happen essentially and it was just uh, in that big race, it was Edison who was the first one. Yeah, that's right. And Ed- So Edison, um, he wasn't the inventor. As we said, 21 other people all invented it all before Edison. But what he did was the one to innovate, to kind of bring all these different ideas together to make not just something that can light up, but something that can actually then be used by a massive amount of people all around the world. So whilst he didn't have that very first idea, he was the one that was able to sort of bring that idea and apply it to reality. That's it. So that's where those two words can be very different. So you do have someone who invents something and gets up on stage in front of everybody and uh, has that lecture to show, hey, here's my idea. Very different story for the person who brings all the other pieces together to innovate to actually bring it at a cost reduction to the point where you know you could actually turn the light bulb on so consumers get the benefits from the invention. So two totally different things and Edison was really the first to innovate bringing all the pieces together in a way that he could bring it to humankind. Yeah, Edison said he was digging and digging and digging trying to find something that he could use, something that worked something that was cheap enough, something that was easy enough to do, something that lasted long enough so that you didn't just get a day's worth and have to get a new light bulb every day. Eventually, in 1880, he found that Japanese bamboo was the winner. It lasted more than a 1,000 hours, and he was able to uh, harness this power of bamboo to use that in his light bulb that then opened the door for everybody to be able to use light bulbs. So the Ed man, he understood better than anybody else and probably a lot of people since that um, invention is not the big deal. It all comes down to innovation and innovation is the product. So manufacturing of what he had to go through, all those those different light bulbs to land on his Japanese bamboo required an enormous amount of trial and error, trying new things and assembled 200 craftspeople into what he called the invention business, which, which was what they were all about. Yeah, we've heard about... Uh when he talks about inventing the light bulb, that he went through 10,000 different things before he eventually found it. 
Going one another one further was a nickel iron battery that his employees they undertook fifty thousand different experiments before they got it. So Edison famously said that in invention or genius was one percent inspiration and ninety nine percent perspiration. And of course, uh, through this gradual invention of the light bulb and um, other people took the baton after him to to keep innovating. At the time in eighteen eighty, a minute of work on average can earn you four minutes of light from a kerosene lamp. That's <laughs> not much of a trade off, is it? Yeah. Well, you're twenty five percent tax. Your after hours work is taxed twenty five percent. That's right. On, going into light. Going into the light. <laughs> Buying kerosene for your lamp. It's a big deal, isn't it? And in two thousand, of course, it's uh, a minute of work gets you one hundred twenty hours of light. Deal. Yeah, that's. I'd take that one minute for one hundred twenty hours of light. Yeah, mm. that, that that keeps you going for a fair while. So that's a good story of how um, innovation happens and where trial and error is allowed to run rampant to, to improve things and make it better to the point it gets um, cost declines and cost curves improves. There is examples where the opposite can happen and one, of course, is nuclear power. Yeah, the picture today of nuclear power, it's an industry in decline. Its electrical output is shrinking because old plants are closing down faster than new ones can open up. This is not because there's a lack of ideas, but it's because there's a lack of opportunity to experiment. Yeah, and this lack of opportunity to experiment is a cautionary tale to all of us about how we can actually cook things up in a very bad way to make things go backwards and um, not evolve. That's right. You can understand Edison with a piece of bamboo experimenting in his um, you know, innovation center. That, that kind of We're willing to tolerate that. We're willing to tolerate someone lighting up a piece of bamboo when it goes to the level of nuclear power, they're much harder to experiment with. <laughs> there's, there's a few problems that may come with that. Yeah, I think it happens at just like a, a business level as well. Like, a, like when you're trying to innovate inside a business, like I remember um, currently I go up against someone and clash a fair bit because he uh, is so against any sort of innovation, but for good reason because if you innovate too much in the engineering sense, things are going to fail. <laughs> the building comes down. It's yeah. like a, so there's less innovation probably in that structural engineering because the risk of collapse is too high. And if you've got too many gunslinging cowboys like myself, it's probably a bad thing <laughs> coming in because if you're playing with a rubber ball, bouncing off the ground and picking it up and you know when you're actually playing with a glass ball where you throw it down and it just breaks and, and shatters. But nuclear power is, is – <laughs> back to the point. <laughs> nuclear power is more than a um, – not playing with a rubber ball where you're throwing it, it bounce back up. It's You're playing with a grenade. You throw it down yeah. and it doesn't bounce up. It explodes and a lot of people die. That's right. That's right. I don't know if you just made that one up on the spot, but that was not a bad little rubber ball, glass ball, grenade. I'll claim it. Yeah. She won't, the one who actually made it up, she won't be listening. <laughs> uh, so the, the problem with nuclear power is cost inflation. So the cost to build new nuclear plants has been rising relentlessly for decades and mostly driven, understandably, by increased caution around safety. So even though we could make a hell of a lot of electricity from nuclear power, uh, we didn't have the trial and error element to be able to play around and tinker to try to maximize that. And really, it's pretty hard to make a new nuclear power plant these days. Yeah, well, after the accidents like in Chernobyl um, in 1986, there's activists and the public have generally just been demanding greater safety standards and, and get them. I think in general, for a lot of things, there's this uh, drive towards improved safety standards. I mean, you don't want anyone risking anyone, but there's unintended consequences sometimes that come with that because there is so much red tape around nuclear power, which you know may not be there for a good reason, some of it. Uh, there's an immense regulatory hurdle that each design needs passed through. I mean, if you make a little tiny tweak during construction, for example – you need to go through the whole regulatory process again 
And because of that, no one's really actually pursuing that. And because no one's pursuing it, you're not getting the cost reduction and uh, ironically the improvements in safety. He's got a few stats here that per unit of power output, coal power kills 2,000 times as many people as nuclear power, bioenergy 50 times as many, gas 40 times as many, hydro 15 times as many, even solar kills five times as many people per unit of power than nuclear, uh, and that's from people falling off roofs. Uh, and that includes you know, uh, your big Chernobyl, your Fukushima, all these big nuclear meltdowns that have killed a whole bunch of people. Turns out the other sources of power are actually also killing a lot more people, but just in different ways that aren't quite so vivid um, as uh, like the Chernobyl stuff. I don't know if you if you watch that uh, oh, TV good. series. Yeah, it was yeah. pretty intense. But the, the reason is that uh, with nuclear power used to be very, very safe. But now, because of these things, we demand it to be very, 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 very safe. And that's pretty much killed any innovation in that field. Well, probably like an analogy, it's like driving a car where you've just got a, um, you know, very safe safety standards compared to driving a car where you've got three feet of steel protecting every car and the speed limit's five kilometres an hour to get that um, limit to very, 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 very safe (laughs) systems, right? That's right. So, so far we've kind of, we've talked through the energy realm and how things have innovated first going from heat to work then going to electricity then going to light bulbs and then uh, a story around nuclear in this book i thought it was a really good book um he told that that was just one story around energy he also talks about stories of innovation through time in public health transport food communication computing even wheeled baggage and even innovation when it comes to dogs and pets as well so i don't remember that what was that do you know off the top of your head yeah it was in the well talking about how it went from wolf Ah, through to yes, domesticated yes. dog. Well, we're yeah. looking at his other books before we got into this, and he does have a strong background in evolutionary biology, which you know, on the surface, there's not a link, but there really is. The whole, uh, all of evolution is trial and error, and he does link that to innovation. So I think that it is that background which mm. makes him such a strong author in this space. Yeah, definitely. I thought the, the supers were super interesting if you want to read them all. But for the rest of this episode, we're not going to go through all those longer stories. It could be a six-hour episode. But instead, we're going to pull out the common threads that will come across all of those different innovations. And maybe if you've got an innovation of your own, you might uh, need to inject a couple of these for yourself. All right, so we're going to now be looking at all of the innovations, essentials. What are the ingredients which put this thing on turbocharge and a bit of fuel on the fire to make things a bit better? Now, the first one is the idea that innovation is gradual. And we've we've touched on this already with the, the stories we mentioned before. Yeah, history of innovation, all those different stories, revealed a pretty consistent pattern, whether it happened yesterday or two centuries ago, whether it was high-tech or low-tech, whether it was a big device or a tiny one, whether it was real or virtual, whether it was the impact was disruptive or uh, constructive. The successful innovations followed pretty much a similar path and all that it was a real slow, gradual innovation. There was not a sudden light bulb flick of a switch, you turn on the light bulbs on, uh, there was a very rare eureka moments, almost no eureka moments, and it was just a gradual build of like a small change here, a small change there, a small change here, and it turns out to be this one massive change at the end. It happens everywhere with pretty much every um, new product or new industry. You can say the same thing about the computer. Uh, if you look really deeply, again, there's no moment of sun breakthrough. There's just a series of small incremental steps, and there's no single day where you can say, hey, before that single day, um, computers didn't exist before then. And after that day, we had computers. Don't work like that. That's right. He says there's no version in history where there was a, an ape 
that gave birth to a, a human. <laughs> like it, it never went like that much of a change. It was a gradual, gradual, gradual change over time. We might think, say, powered flight. You know, the Wright brothers on the 17th of December, 1903, they were the first ones to do this. It seems like this eureka moment. The day before, there was no such thing as powered flight. On that day, though, they took off, there was liftoff, and from that point on, there was powered flight. And you might think, well, that's one of those eureka instant pivot point moments. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but not at all. But again, no. if you drill down, right, it's totally different. The Kitty Hawk moment, which we all point to, it came after years of hard slogs and tinkering and re-tinkering. You know, one day they uh, went into a headwind and it went up for a bit. You're like, hey, was that power of flight? <laughs> was, that, was that it? Like, was that the wind? <laughs> there was a big gust of wind happening. <laughs> and the next day the gust went the other way. I think it was powered flight. And then three weeks later, you're like, oh. It's going. <laughs> That's right. Even that, like that. even that very first flight was like, I don't know, 20 or 30 seconds or something. It wasn't like you're going from New York to London. Uh, it was just a very short flight and it, was a, it wasn't – that was the point at which we then had powered flight. There was then an ongoing, constant, gradual, 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 slow build to turn it to the point of, you know, we've got one person in the air for a couple of hundred metres all the way through to moving hundreds of people across – oceans you know in in a matter of hours so even that we can't point to as one specific moment but it was a gradual evolutionary process being humans we love to just attribute it to a single person like x invented the y and then we're all everyone just jumps on that and that's what uh comes up in google but that's a big part of human nature but he says there's a there's a big issue as well which is the intellectual property system so the person who gets the rights to the IP at the very beginning, they're the ones in the history books of the IP and we forget about all the predecessors and ignore all of the successes and because of that IP system, that's we have someone to point to and it's, it's not true and it's not correct. Another element of innovation is what we've kind of touched on previously is that innovation is different from invention. So the uh, 1964 Nobel Prize winner Charles Towns who had the, the physics behind the laser I like to tell this story of a beaver. There's a beaver hanging out with his mates, a rabbit, the turtle, the possum. And then the beaver looks up at the Hoover Dam, this massive feat, this uh, you know enormous engineering marvel. The beaver looks up and tells his mates, you know, I didn't build it myself, but it's based on an idea of mine. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like saying that, you know, the invention, maybe the beaver invented the idea of a dam. You know, he got a whole bunch of his logs and uh, put them all together and dammed up a, a, a river or a creek. But that's very different from being then the person who innovates and makes the Hoover Dam. Yeah, inventions this uh, specific product or idea. There's probably a lot of people who've had that uh, prototype of something that ends up changing the world. And you know, it could have been me who did Uber or Airbnb <laughs> or something like that. People had the baby, maybe a working app or something like that. But it's really the people who are the innovators, like your Edison's, who apply that invention to solve real world problems. Another part of innovation is that innovation is recombinant. I don't know if I'd ever use that in uh, normal life, but I guess it means taking little bits and pieces and putting them together. So it's not just like a brand new idea out of thin air, but it's more often than not a combination of different pre-existing ideas, putting little bits and pieces from different ideas together to make something new. Yeah, mate, it sounds like a lot like sex. It almost literally is. It's just a big gangbang orgy of, of ideas. Um, it really is, though, bringing together <laughs> where you've got, <laughs> you've got different um, sets of genes flying around everywhere and then um, you might, you know, it's probably where it breaks down, where you, you're combining four to five different ideas together to come up with a new one like you would a kid. Um, 
that's exactly you know like a male presents half the genes to an embryo and so does a female and that recombination makes more and then you combine it again in another generation yeah that's right that can, you brought it, it home. home you brought it home <laughs> i was a bit worried where that was going but no you saved it uh, another one is that innovation involves trial and error so a lot of the time the inventors the innovators they say that oh, i'm not really doing too much i'm just trying different things and generally that's what it is and there's probably a lot more error <laughs> than there is success of course, Edison and his team trialled over 6,000 different materials to before they landed on Japanese bamboo. And of course, the famous quote that everyone spruiks, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Mm. And it is that attitude really towards trial and error and seeing that innovation is the business and the product is the trial and error. And um, focusing on that is what's going to lead to uh, the better innovations. Another element of uh, innovation that not quite so revolutionary as the uh, the light bulb, but um, if you look at athletics, you got a bloke named Dick Fosbury, who before Dick Fosbury uh, came onto the scene, everybody who did high jump did the exact same method. They'd sort of run straight up to it and do the sort of scissor step over it and see how high they could jump. And all of a sudden, this weird dude comes along and starts running sideways and jumping over it backwards and having like almost a convulsion as he flops over the bar. And everyone just laughed at him and thought, this is just absolutely ridiculous. He'd just taken the piss. And then, of course, he won gold. And then all of a sudden, a couple more people start trying it. And then if you fast forward today, pretty much every single person uses this weird Fosbury flop method. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there's like a lot of sports where people are afraid to look silly. But if they did play around with things, I reckon there's some low-hanging fruit there. I've got a few ideas I can share with you later. Actually, <laughs> AFL, it's like just a quick one. Like, say someone kicks it behind. Why yeah. don't someone get on each other's shoulders and get three people on the shoulders on the goal line? Have it, have someone who is really good at leg presses. Well, I remember um, there was a game where a guy tried to climb up on the post oh, yeah. and he got fined for it because oh, he's not allowed to. But I don't know. Maybe if you climbed on somebody else's shoulders, maybe you could. You got three people and you got three sets of three, and then you got. You'd everyone to, touching the ball. I was going to say, you'd have to hope it's pretty cl- It's got to be like within an arm's width of you then. Yeah, like you can't. Yeah, no, but you get, you get three sets. You know, Just line up the whole line. The whole team. Innovation is <laughs> also inexorable. Most inventions, mate, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, move on quickly, will we? What's yeah. that? We're moving on quickly. Moving from on that, quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I thought we wanted to share later. Because some ideas are trial and error. If I have 999 more of them, I'm going to be yeah. coaching That's in a couple right. of years. That's right. So, in most inventions. So innovation is inexorable, another one of those lovely words. Uh, it's the same one. That's the one you were talking about before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I haven't become that familiar with it yet. Most inventions <laughs> lead to priority disputes between um, competing complaint, complaints. So everyone's competing with each other and everyone seems to stumble on the idea at the, the pretty much the same time, mm. like uh, like um, Elizabeth Gilbert's big magic idea, mm. which I'm a big believer in actually, the more um, – after I've read that book. But six people, for example, invented or discovered the th- thermometer, five of the electric telegraph, four decimal fractions, two natural selection. We've gone through the whole bunch that went through the light bulb. And likewise, there was a heap of different search engines coming onto the market in 1990s. Uh, and it was impossible, he says, for search engines not to be invented in the 1990s. So you could use that word inevitable or inexorable. You got a whole bunch of people, like there was a whole bunch of stuff that's happened previously, a whole bunch of orgies going on to combine ideas. Someone's going to pop out with the same ideas and win the race. That's right. I, uh, I was telling you I've been watching uh, Super Pumped, the battle for Uber, about uh, about Uber. And you might think, oh, Uber, this is this awesome idea that nobody else had come up with. 
There was actually shitloads. <laughs> he wasn't yeah. the only one. There was heaps of people that all had the same idea at the same time. It would just happen to be that Uber was the one that got the biggest, the quickest and kind of won the race. But that's not saying that Uber was the only one that had that idea. It was pretty much, as you say, inexorable that it was it was happening. It was happening all around the world at that mm-hmm. time. And it was just the combination of the different factors that all led to that point in time where it was possible and he wasn't the only one that thought of it. It might seem a bit harsh to the heroic inventor. Like, hey, it's not that big. A deal. It was going to happen anyway. <laughs> yeah. But the... Uh, but like the paradox is it what does make it remarkable is that there actually was a race with a lot of people and you're the person who won. Somebody right. won. Yeah. So I think it's probably a good takeaway here. Like if you are in um, the game of innovation, realize that you are in a race. There's probably that idea hitting a lot of people at the exact same time now. You need to go hard mm. to, to win it. Yeah. We kind of hold people up as being, this was this innovator, this person who had this crazy idea that nobody else had, which is not true. As you say, maybe it's more of a, more of a pat on the back to say, well, actually a whole bunch of people had the same idea. You were just the one who nailed it. So maybe it is. Maybe it is a, a good badge of honor to have. The other ingredient in innovation there is there is a hype cycle. And this has come up a few times and it's known as uh, Amara's Law. And this is where people tend to overestimate the impact of new technology in the short run. You get all excited and you put all your money in Doge, but then uh, it goes to shit. But you actually underestimate it in the long run. So overestimate in the short term, underestimate in the long term. Yeah. In the 1990s, there was that period of wild excitement when the internet was just coming along. We saw that dot-com, the big bubble, and then the big bust because everyone thought, okay, internet, this is awesome. In the short term, this is wildly exciting. They overestimated it. There was a big bust. But then if you fast forward 20 years, actually, it was you know, yeah. it was warranted. It was massive. It was a, an enormous innovation. So it was just that the the time horizons everyone had were a bit off. So short run, we overestimate. Long run, we definitely underestimate. Another aspect of innovation is that it's a bottom-up phenomenon. And this goes against a fashionable argument uh, that innovation is creationist, right? you got like a uh, intelligent design by government programs throwing money at some opportunities. It's always the big political debates. Are we going to throw money at uh, technology in this country and uh, they're going to be responsible for it all? But really, it's not true at all. The governments and doing that top-down approach mm. does nothing to actually improve the innovations. <laughs> That's right. The top-down approach of whether it's government or whether it's big, um, big corporations trying to force innovation doesn't work. It's only the bottom-up way of... Uh, you know, Susie out in the garage tinkering with things that comes up with this next thing and then her, her neighbour Sally starts tinkering and adds a little bit more to it. It's the bottom-up approach of the trial and error and all those other things that we spoke about that leads to innovation, not just someone coming along with a big check and saying, hey, go and innovate for me. Yeah, well, the government actually get in the way of technology more often than not when they're trying to help things. It's uh, they actually it's like going up and trying to help your partner make a cake and you you, you just threw the wrong ingredient <laughs> in there. Trying to help you make things worse. Um for example, Europe explicitly adopted an industrial policy for 2G networks, but when they did that, they trapped the continent in a standard way that um, was taken over by America. Yeah, that's right. They thought, oh, great, we've got this innovation. Let's really let's support the innovators. Let's work hard. Let's get this rolled out across the whole continent. Turns out they were just then they just got stuck. And what are we? We're up to 5G now, so they're way behind. <laughs> well, you'd say the same about the NBN network in Australia, right? That's right. And you could uh, definitely say the same about that. <laughs> it's shit house. Trying to <laughs> enable business through um, invent, uh, investing insanely amounts of money in that, and then before you know, it, 5G comes through and makes it redundant. That's right. And then one I found pretty interesting that the uh, innovation is the mother of science, as often it is the daughter. So it's what he's saying. You know, the daughter of science would mean, okay, we've got this new scientific discovery, and then the innovators think, okay, now that science has discovered this, what can I do with it? 
In fact, it actually often goes the other way around in that the innovators just work out some wild shit and then the scientists follow along to try to work out what the hell happened. <laughs> yeah, well, those who came up with the steam engines first, uh, thermodynamics and the theories around that came afterwards. Like, That's right. Hey, how does that work? How do you do that? <laughs> and they study it and then, you know, not the other way around, it wasn't thermodynamics and then you create steam engines That's afterwards. That's right. Yeah, the same, like powered flight preceded aerodynamics, animal breeding preceded genetics, um, pigeon fancying laid the groundwork for Darwin's understanding of natural selection. Metalworking gave birth to chemistry. So it's not that there was scientific discoveries and innovation. More often than not, it was actually the other way around. So there's a lot of different things that go into the the secret soup of what um, goes to innovation. But there's really one big meta one that, that covers them all that we need to unlock to actually optimize this. And this big ingredient, the secret sauce that leads to it out of all of them is probably freedom. Mm, the freedom to exchange, experiment, imagine, invest, fail. The freedom from expropriation and restrictions. Uh, the freedom on the part of the consumer to reward the innovations that they deem the best and reject the ones that they don't. Freedom is a, a massive important ingredient in this uh, secret sauce that we've got cooking here. Yeah, really, he's got a lot of um, like parent, child, daughter sort of um, metaphors he uses. But innovation <laughs> is the child of uh, freedom because it is a free, creative attempt to satisfy freely expressed human desires. So it's that desire that we've got uh, innate within us, wanting to help and improve things, needs to be really unlocked. Yeah, innovative societies are free societies where people are free to express their wishes and seek the satisfaction of those wishes, and where creative minds are free to experiment to find a way to supply those requests. Yeah, it's a rare phenomenon today in a world where governments try to dictate what you can do and as well as what you cannot through probably well-intentioned regulations, but um, sometimes um, ruining the cake. And of course, probably of all the lessons um, and all the stories in the book, the most relevant is Thomas Edison. Even though he was the 22nd person to come along to the light bulb, he still really changed the world from there on. As he told interviewers, it was that 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. That first idea yeah, it's important, but then working hard to actually make it work, that's real, really where the value comes from. So innovation being the child of freedom and the parent of pro- prosperity. <laughs> is this child parenting? It's probably got daddy issues. I think. <laughs> he must do. Uh, it is on balance a very good thing and we abandon it at our peril. I mean, there's, there's a lot of discussions you hear about throwing up the red tape and there's not many discussions on, hey, how can we um, you know, make things more free and give people more freedom to allow it to innovate as much as possible? Because the fact that many people think more about how to constrain people rather than encourage, that's a bit worrying on this topic. The future, it's going to be pretty exciting, pretty thrilling, and innovation is what's going to take us there. Mm